is the Harris Poll America This Week podcast uh, audio event with, as always, my co-host, Libby Rodney, our Chief Strategy Officer. Libby, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you, John? I'm good, and I'm excited because we have a special guest, right? Yes, we have a special guest. I'm so happy she's on. Uh, Abby Lunny is joining us today. She is my partner in crime running the thought strategy or thought leadership team at the Harris Bowl. Good morning, Abby. Good morning. So excited to be here. Abby, we're so excited to have you and you've got some really great data to take us through this morning. But why don't we tell you what we're going to do? We've got four stories today. We're going to start uh, with a, a story called Yes on Donuts. No on events, inflation's mm-hmm. impact on consumer behaviors. And this is a new study uh, that we just conducted with Bloomberg that I think shares some really interesting insights into how inflation is not only, right, Libby, reshaping consumer behaviors, but it's also giving people some convenient excuses. Yeah. <laughs> we'll I definitely see, we'll use get, those excuses. <laughs> right. And then um, Abby's going to take us through uh, with you a fascinating new Harris study with 4-H that really goes into explaining how Gen Z is factoring in climate change uh, into their decision making. And I really encourage you to absorb this data, as is the next story that we're also going to get Abby to, to kind of take us through, which is looking at a really interesting new study uh, by Harris, Google, and Axios into the practice of greenwashing. And then, uh, Libby, you've got a fun story for us at the end, right? Because Passover begins today and it's Easter weekend. So what do you got? Yeah, we have a story about America's favorite Easter candy. And the news will shock you. So just wait <laughs> till the end. <laughs> All right, a treat at the end. Okay, so let's get into it. As usual, we always have three stats of the week. Number one, uh, we have been, we're now in week uh, 111 of tracking uh, everything since the pandemic began. And we have this question that we ask each week with respect to COVID, do you think the the worst is ahead of us or behind us? And I'm happy to announce that two-thirds of Americans say the worst is behind us now. Uh, That's at 67%. That is down, however, uh, two points from 69% last week, perhaps uh, related to the high-profile BA2 variant, which made its way uh, known into a splashy party uh, this week or last week at DC, the super spreader event, so-called. So perhaps that sort of maybe has knocked a little bit of optimism off, but those are still strong numbers. They're getting closer back to 76%, which was the high watermark for us back in, in May. We also have a second study, uh, second stat rather on economy, inflation and jobs. And those remain to be the top concern among uh, more than eight out of 10 Americans, 88%. The second most important issue in America this week is Russia's invasion of Ukraine at 84%. And then uh, with the tragic events uh, here in in New York City with the subway attacks, it's not... uh, surprising to see that rising crime and violence in America is now a major concern of 83% of Americans. And then lastly, on our third story, uh, we find our third stat, we find that the top three most visible aspects of inflation, 75% of Americans say it's gas prices, 73% say it's groceries, uh, followed then significantly lower, but but also very meaningful. 38% of Americans say it's it's about 
visibility in terms of eating out. So we're going to get into inflation in our first story uh, with Bloomberg, and there's some pretty interesting data in here, Libby. I mean, I think number one, to kind of set the stage, everything is more expensive right now. We've seen that inflation has risen at the fastest pace in 40 years. And this week, the Labor Department said that the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, rose 8.5% annually. There's also sobering data that mortgage rates hit 5% this week. That's the first time since 2011. So, geez, everything is just costing more. And we see that in our data that we conducted with Bloomberg, where three quarters of Americans say they're impacted most by the gas prices and groceries, as we discussed, but also what that is going to impact on their spending. Four in 10 of them say they're very likely to cut back given rising inflation. But Abby, Libby, what do you guys make of these stats? Over a quarter of parents and pet owners say they are not at all likely to cut back on spending on their children and animals at 28% and 27%. (laughs) Well, I just empathize with this as not having pets, but having children where I just, um, I'm not going to cut back on the spending for them. They've been through a lot with the pandemic and they're going to have Easter baskets, you know, they're going to have things that um, bring a little joy to our life. So I'm not, I'm not quite there, but you know, maybe in the future. (laughs) What about you, Abby? Oh, 100%. I will spoil my dogs any day. It's uh, non-negotiable. We've seen that for a long time. People are so much more likely to buy bougie things for their pets and throw them (laughs) birthday parties and get them more expensive food than they get for themselves. So um, that totally jives with my personal experience. Abby, you've done a lot of work in this sector, right? Does that sort of track with other Harris data with regards to the affection that people have for their pets? Oh, 100%. People will do anything for their pets and for their animals. Um, they will, like I said, we've, we had a really interesting finding for for Volvo around how millennial men are actually the most likely to throw their pets uh, a birthday party <laughs> um, <laughs> and to buy them, you know, organic pet food, take them to even, you know, pet therapy, uh, all kinds of ways. Um, we also see the rise of appetite for things like paternity leave whenever someone gets a new pet, taking time to spend time with them at home. Um, so yeah, these are critical relationships and, and consumers are willing to splurge whenever they get the chance. I love it. It sounds like pets are inflation proof. But also, you know, I thought it was really interesting, Libby, what Krispy Kreme did this week. Tell us about that. Oh, yes. I love what Chris. Krispy Kreme did this week because they basically took their brand and their most desired product, their um, their Krispy Kreme donut, and they said, we're going to take uh, benchmark the price of a dozen glazed donuts. So that's their most popular donut and put benchmark it at, um, with a gallon of gas. Mm. So usually these donuts are somewhere over a price point of $10. And now it's $4.11 and it will change depending on the, the gallon um, of gas. Hmm. And so I, what I like what they're doing here is they're saying like, hey, we're going to give some sort of anchoring out there to the market. We, we see across the board that prices are going up for you consumer and we're going to give you a little bit of 
relief. And we're going to give you a little bit of empathy. Um, and the way that we're going to do that is just to make our donuts cheaper for you for a while as your expenses rise at, at the pump. And I think it's really smart in two ways. It gets more people eating donuts, which is good for them. Um, and it, it takes that money that Americans might be saving because they're spending more at the gas and saying, okay, well, Krispy Kreme over here has my side, it's my alley. Um, and therefore, you know, I'm going to go support Krispy Kreme. Um, and I have a three and a half year old who just tried a donut for his first time. And I know <laughs> getting donuts into people's mouths is, is a really quality, you know, way of strategically thinking about this because now he won't stop talking about donuts. So, you know, you just got to get that first donut back into someone's mouth and, you know, it's a donut explosion. It's, it's smart, smart work. Really clever. It reminded me <laughs> of uh, 10 years ago during the great recession. Remember Hyundai had that great program where you could return the car if you lost your job. So there's yeah, kind of a nice the, theme there, right? Yeah, it's it's some sort of security that says an empathy and relief, right? That you mm -hmm. understand what we're going through um, and you recognize that. So it's a really it's a really great way to brands, for brands to think about that. Libby, another really interesting part of this is that we also found in this survey with Bloomberg that inflation is also creating some sort of curious excuses uh, what we did is we asked people if they've ever used uh, the latest surge of inflation as an excuse to forego an impulse purchase or skip a social event, even when cost wasn't actually really the, the, a factor. And it was really surprising to us. Two thirds of Americans say they've done so at least once or twice. And a third <laughs> have done it a few times and nearly one in five have done it often. What do you make of that? Yeah, I think it's the, you know, it's gone from FOMO to being scared to get back into things. And I think inflation, you know, people are using the pandemic as a way to keep their lives a little um, unbusy and and not get fully into the swing of things. And I think inflation is now a pretty good excuse that people are using to maybe keep some of those social events a little quieter and not to make, um, uh, not to over schedule people's lifestyles and activities, because that's the number one thing we heard during the pandemic is people realized they were way too busy. They were way hmm. overscheduled. And so maybe people are just looking for a little bit of excuse not to get back into the full swing of things and overschedule themselves again. Fascinating. Inflation plus work from home equals excuses. Interesting. <laughs> um, what did we learn about inflation in relationships? Yeah, so there's a there's an idea here that maybe inflation is is kind of good for relationships in terms of talking about financial advice. So last year in 2021 in the summer, we found that there was a little bit of um, committing financial deception going on, meaning that 47% of men and 39% of women reported that they weren't exactly honest about what was happening in their financial lives. And 85% said when they were caught, it impacted their financial relationships in a variety of ways, you know, arguments, et cetera. So there's a little bit of, let's not share everything. I'm a little bit of concern by that. But now more than half Americans today have discussed money more than they used to because of inflation. And that's specifically true with millennials and men. Um, millennials at 61%, men at 52, women at 53, so pretty even with men and women. Um, and then a close, 
close to a fifth even report that inflation has had a positive impact on their financial relationship with their partners. Um, and I think, so what I think is kind of interesting here is if you think about the summer of 2021, there was a lot of money moving around. There was a lot of speculation. Um, this is, you know, the height of GameStop, cryptocurrency, like there could have been a lot of financial deception for how are we going to make money? How are we going to generate wealth? Like all these things and, and people kind of wanting to, or spend money. There was a big spending boom last summer. So maybe with inflation, there's just a, a an anchoring point for the couples to say, oh, we have to deal with this. This impacts our gas bill. This impacts, you know, our grocery bill. Like this is something we both can convene around and figure out. So maybe it will be good in the long term for Americans, couple and, and relationships. <laughs> so interesting. You know, I you think on one hand of inflation as a financial force, but you're really sort of suggesting it's a cultural force as well. Well, you know, part of inflation is also just the mindset. Like once you, that's what's so hard to stop about inflation. Like once the American psyche starts to say it's an inflation mindset, everything also starts to, people start to assume everything's going to get more expensive, pull back their wallets. And it creates, sometimes that can, um, it reinforces the cycle is what I've heard economists say. So um, just an interesting all of this has to do with our psychology, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Speaking of psychology, uh, take us through you and Abby. Why don't you guys take us through this this fascinating next survey with 4-H? Yeah. So I just want to I'll I'll hand it off to Abby to talk about. But you know, um, Abby and I run the thought leadership team at the Harris Poll, and we've been working with 4-H for the last three years, really focused on teens talking about broadband access, nutrition um, inequity, teen mental health. And now we've come out with a really great study on how teens think about sustainability, the environment, and how it really impacts their overall mental health. And I think what Abby will talk through some of the data is like, this is why you can see Gen Z leaning more into this doomer-like mentality. And so I think it's really important to say, it's not just a life stage for you know, angsty teens, it's easy to dismiss that, but actually they have huge weight on their shoulders because of where the very real impact of climate change has had on their life. So Abby, please take it away. Yes, I'm, I'm so uh, happy to be here to talk about this data. It, I think it's so important for understanding this youngest generation and, and their mindsets towards the future. Um, the whole uh, objective of this, this platform that we've built with 4-H is um, there's so much research about young people, but there isn't as much coming from their perspective. And so mm -hmm. we want to bring light to how teens are thinking about these issues. And when it comes to the environment and climate change, they are united. And um, I know as someone who does a lot of research in and around sustainability, the consensus around climate change was uh, remarkable to me. So eight out of 10 teens um, expect climate change and other environmental forces to affect big decisions like where they live, whether they choose to have children, um, maybe even a career path. Uh, they are thinking about the consequences. Um, we also saw similar levels of sort of concern and worry and angst about climate change among teens, uh, regardless of, uh, you know, their their gender or their urbanicity or their region factors that might typically impact something like that. So it was remarkably um, con uh, 
there was remarkable consensus among teens that this is a really strong, um, uh, concerning issue. Uh, we also see that they don't they don't believe that leadership is taking the action that they they want to see. Less than half of teenagers ages 13 to 19 believe political and global leaders are taking meaningful action to protect the environment. Uh, many instead are taking things into their own hands. 77% uh, feel that they have a responsibility for protecting the future of the planet um, and the same feel empowered to act on that. So if there is one thing about this generation, I think we see consistently that they are more realistic about uh, their current state and the future state of the world, but also more empowered to feel like they can can drive that change. Um, and really what's underlying a lot of this concern and motivation is, uh, you know, these teens, these Gen Z uh, Americans, they're thinking about their future, right? 84% right. say that if we don't address climate change today, it will be too late for future generations uh, making some parts of the planet unlivable. A similar percentage say that it will affect uh, that climate change will affect everyone in their generation due to geopolitical instability. 69% worry their family will be affected by climate change in the near future. We saw that in the data, just an increase in exposure to things like um, floods and other natural disasters that um, is really raising awareness of this as a phenomenon for teens in their own day-to-day -day lives. Um, and they also are looking for improvement um, at the local level, um, just a very slight majority 55% say their community makes a meaningful effort to prevent environmental hazards to protect citizens. So there's room to step it up both on the national level, like we saw, and then kind of locally at the community level as well. Fascinating. So let me ask you guys this. So, you know, we have a monthly Harvard Harris poll survey and every month climate change sort of sits around 20% with voters in terms of an important issue, a critical issue. And this is all Americans of all ages. Right. It's far behind immigration, the economy, things like that. But what I think your data is saying is that this is an existential threat with young people. And yet the rest of the country doesn't really understand. I mean, can I unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it's very clear that they are thinking about the future. They have the most years left to live on this planet, and they're thinking about the long term consequences. Um, I think a lot of times when you see those numbers, um, especially around an issue like climate change in a in a study among adults, uh, you tend to see a lot of polarization, frankly. Um, and we just did not see that coming through in our data. It's um, I don't know if they just haven't reached the point where they're getting so polarized on it yet. They haven't been socialized to have that or if they're, you know, just thinking about it more literally in terms of the implications for their own lives. Uh, but pretty clearly and consistently strong majority, 70 percent, 80 percent are worried about it um, and looking for for better solutions for their future. I would also add to to that is that um, so when you think about like when you read books written by futurists and and people are thinking that way, young people tend to, they're better at um, expanding their minds and thinking about different types of futures and different types of realities. Whereas the older you get, the more your mind gets a little bit set on how you think the world's going to play out. So mm -hmm. I would imagine that um, the older the population gets in the U.S., which is, you know, it's an older trajectory, that we think everything's going to work out fine and that it will all, that we can't radically see what a different world would look like. But then if you think about people who are 13 to 19, they've lived in a world where 
you know, their friends, maybe or family out in California have are every year deal with wild raging fires. They've dealt with hurricanes. They've dealt with flooding on a, on a yearly level, like major disaster. So I think they see it coming in a much different way than, than you do um, from previous generations. And that sense of urgency is really high for them. Um, and so I, I think I think what's kind of interesting too about Abby's data is like they don't really trust politicians to figure it out. They don't think they're well equipped to understand it. The same way that we saw in our previous data, John, and we talked about, they don't think that politicians are well equipped to understand the future of the internet and how that unfolds. Right. So there's a lot of kind of gaps that especially younger Americans feel um, that politicians and our leaders are are being a little bit blindsided by. And I also thought there was a reoccurring theme here, Libby and Abby, around this sort of tracks with a lot of the data that we've run with the American Psychological Association and the CDC on young people and mental health. Because, right, there's there's a connection here in this data. Yeah, 100%. We see that um, the more time that um, teens are able to spend in the environment and outside, they're more likely to say that they are happier in their day-to-day lives, um, that they are less stressed. Um, And so there's a really important uh, aspect of why being connected to nature, spending time outside um, can help teens, you know, kind of feel happier, less stressed, more confident in their day-to-day lives. Fascinating. Well, let's talk about this third story, which is, again, Abby, some really interesting data that that you and, and Libby and the team have run with Google Cloud on corporate greenwashing. Why don't you start just by explaining to the audience what, what greenwashing is, if they're not familiar with it, and then take us through the data. Yeah. So greenwashing is when company um, sort of overstates Um, or maybe purports to be environmentally conscious for marketing purposes, um, but it isn't actually making notable sustainability efforts. And um, in this research we did among uh, C-suite executives around the world, uh, we saw that sustainability ESG was the number one corporate priority, but at the same time, 58% admitted that their companies have overstated their sustainability efforts um, and, and were guilty of, of greenwashing by that definition. Um, in the U.S., this was even higher, 68% uh, admitted to doing this. And this is a survey of executives. This isn't yes. consumers. Wow. Yeah. This is executives evaluating their own organizations. And what's what's interesting is um, this calls out a real tension point we've been seeing in sustainability for for a long time, where you know, 80% of companies give their company, 80% of executives give their companies an above average rating for environmental sustainability, which statistically is not possible that 80% could be above average. Um, <laughs> right. Um, so there's clearly, you know, some confirmation bias happening there. Um, and even as 80% are saying they're doing a good job, two-thirds have questioned whether their company's sustainability efforts were genuine. Um, so there's a real disconnect that's happening. Um, and, you know, I think what we see clearly in the data is that leaders are looking for more measurement, more, um, tangible ways to track, to understand, to move their efforts forward. Um, for example, 93% said that they'd be willing to tie their compensation to ESG goals or that they already do so. Um, 
However, um, you know, that disconnect continues as 65% say they want to make progress on sustainability efforts. They don't know how to actually do it. And I think that's another sort of taboo in the sustainability space that there's uh, everyone wants to do the best thing and to make great strides, but it's a really difficult problem to solve. And, um, you know, there's still not enough transparency around it. In fact, only 36% of executives said their companies had measurement tools in place to track their sustainability efforts. And just 17% of those said they were using data from their measurement tools to optimize their strategies going forward. Really incredible. And I mean, Libby, what do you sort of take of this, you know, this absence of metrics does seem to make a lot of sense because there's a lot of cynicism out there. I'm always wondering about how many times carbon credits are resold on whatever marketplace this is, right? I mean, you know, how do we create a system or, or create more of a structure around this so that companies can actually be incented? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because the, you know, SEC, they're trying to create they're they're trying to make every public company actually report um, certain kind of metrics on their ESG goals. So that might have some sort of implications around what companies report on, but it's kind of debated at this point, what should those things be and how do how are companies already trying to negotiate them their way out of it? I think it's it's just really complicated. It has to go the the measurement has to go across the the supply chain um and i think that's ultimately where companies kind of run into problems but i think we know from working with unilever um john and abby and i all worked on unilever on their um esg type of products they really had the the measurement in place to to um to see their impact overall. And it, it had a really positive impact on not only the brand, but the um, image of the brand. Um, so I think there's ways and models to go out and do it. It's just challenging. You know what we should do? This is a great thought. Maybe get Abby back and we'll get Martin Whitaker on. He's a, a client of ours and also the CEO of Just Capital, who's a super oh, activist yeah. in this space. They do really great work. We'll have to go deeper on this topic. Abby, these are both amazing. Libby, bring it home in the, in the last five <laughs> minutes. What do you have for sure. our last story? Sure. So we just wanted to highlight um, a recent study we did with Instacart um, about Easter candy. Um, <laughs> and so I was so shocked by this. So nearly two thirds of Americans agree that Easter candy is the best seasonal candy. Um, and all of you listening might say, yes, that makes total sense to me. That didn't make any sense to me. I much prefer Halloween candy, but more than half say Easter candy of Americans say that Easter candy is better than Halloween candy. And the rankings are as followed. Um, Easter cream egg, peanut butter eggs, Easter jelly beans, chocolate mini eggs, and finally, um, milk chocolate kisses. And so you might be wondering, well, where are peeps? Well, peeps are still popular. 25% <laughs> of Americans say they eat marshmallow chicks for the sake of tradition, despite being their least favorite candies. <laughs> peeps are like the peeps are like the candy corn of Easter, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's just part of tradition you know, people shove them down your throats. Grandma's there with her peeps. Like you feel bad and you know, you just, you just go with it. Um, and then 
you know, I thought was also interesting is we have some regional data. So um, if you're on the, the West Coast of the U.S., you're really about Cadbury Easter cream eggs. And then if you're kind of um, on the East, but you know, also Midwest. So from Minnesota to New York, you're about Reese's peanut butter eggs. Um, and then if you're in Florida or North Carolina, that's where Starburst Easter jelly beans really run, <laughs> run wild. Um, and then there's just differences in terms of which states prefer marshmallow chicks versus jelly beans. So the chick states are New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, West Virginia, New York. Versus the jelly bean states are South Dakota, Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. And coming from Minnesota, I can tell you, it's a big jelly bean state. There are jelly bean bowls all over around Easter. And you just always get stuck somehow with those black ones, though. And so you either love or hate them. But I don't know how, I don't know where you guys line up on the Easter egg candy. Yeah, Abby, you're from Austin. Give us a, give us a go. Is this data holding up? Yeah, you know, I think um, I have actually a hot take on the on the Reese's front, um, which is that this year they released Reese's carrots. Um, and I've been so that the chocolate to peanut butter ratio is better than the eggs. Um, oh. Yes. And I've seen those taking off in Austin. I uh, did not. I'm a little surprised to see Cadbury cream, cream eggs taking over in Texas. Um, but it looks like they've kind of dominated most of the, the Western United States. So, um, yeah. <laughs> that injection of cream, <laughs> there it is. We have a little bit of divisiveness, even when it comes to candy across the, across the country. Fantastic. You guys, let's leave it there. I'll give everybody their Friday back. Uh, that was a fascinating half hour. Abby, um, thank you so much for joining us. Yes. Thanks, Abby. Thank you for having me. This was Will so you come fun. Back? Of course, anytime. Okay. Bring us some great new data. And <laughs> um, this has been America This Week. You can read uh, our newsletter. Libby and I have that on my page and on her page. And we're here every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern. So come back and also send us some ideas for polls. All right. We'd love to, yeah. to bring those on the air. Absolutely. All right, Thank you guys. You. Take care, everybody. Bye. <laughs>